and welcome to I Think You're Interesting. I'm Todd Vanderwerf, the I, and I Think You're Interesting. It's the holiday season. Thanksgiving is over. We're heading up on Christmas and Hanukkah and all of the assorted other end-of-year holidays that make up this time of year, which is, is one of my favorites. And if you are like me and you grew up going to church, that means that you are coming up on one of the two times of the year when you might go to church. Uh... Christmas and Easter, which means that you may be thinking a little bit about uh, religion in the United States and how it's gotten sort of incestuously intertwined with everything else. And by that, I specifically mean Christianity in the United States. I actually, in the wake of the 2016 election, found myself going to church a lot more, not all the time or anything, but I found myself going to uh, a church just, just off of downtown LA uh, and and attending and, and sort of trying to contemplate how the religion of my youth had gotten to a place where I didn't feel like I recognized it anymore. And I, in that time, I also started listening to a podcast called uh, Bad Christian, which is hosted by three guys who were, were in a band together called Emery at one time. Two of them still are. The third is is off, but still does the podcast with them. And, and of those hosts, uh, Matt Carter has joined us today. Uh, he's going to talk with us about sort of the relationship between Christianity and politics in the U.S., but he's also going to talk to us about his favorite chord progressions, his favorite Christmas gift, things like that. I think it's a really interesting discussion, even if you're a non-believer, non-Christian, if you're just sort of interested in the way that these issues have affected us in the last 30, 40 years in the United States. Matt's got a lot to say about that, and I'm really excited for you to get to hear our discussion. Matt, it's great to have you here. Thank you. I am glad to be here. I kind of want to start with, uh, I, I was listening to some, uh, I realize you are not like the singer for Emory. You just do mm-hmm. background vocals, but it's it's uh, it's listed as post-hardcore on Wikipedia is the genre of it. And there is a fair amount of shouting, screaming, et cetera involved. And I've mm-hmm. always wanted to know, like, what is, like, what's the technique for keeping vocals uh, in check when you're doing that sort of thing night after night mm-hmm. on a tour? Like, how do you keep your, how do you protect your voice or how does, how does uh, the lead singer Toby protect his voice? Mm-hmm. Well, I do some screaming so I can speak on that a little bit. Screaming is obviously, I would hope that goes without saying, tech easier than singing. But nonetheless, it's real. if you scream wrong, you can really damage yourself or it's painful and you won't be able to perform the next night and stuff like that. But there's definitely a technique to screaming um, as silly as it sounds, is that there is a refined and proper technique to do, or, or, or multiple, I should say. There's different styles of screaming, sure. but the kind that that we do, um, it it uh, it it has to do with where you you, if you're familiar with it, what part of your uh, face and mouth and body you use to resonate the scream from. So that scream that you do, if somebody just chase you with a knife all of a sudden right. would come really right out of your throat and vocal cords. And that's the kind that, you know, you can get a lot of energy out of it, but only for about 20 seconds. And then it's gone for today and tomorrow and the next day. Right. You know, that kind of like if you scream at a concert and you don't know what you're doing. Um, so that can sound good, but it is, it's not sustainable. So you have to figure out how to project it maybe a little bit more with, if anybody understands what I'm talking about, it's like 
a good scream that doesn't hurt your voice is like using what you would call a head voice. Right. It's almost even like a falsetto, but then with a ton of air pressure behind it, and then the shape of your mouth and soft palate are very compressed. Right. And then you can get then it uh, it, it kind of skips or bypasses using your vocal cords themselves to to create the. Uh, friction and sound and then it can be just that's a very technical kind of explanation no, of it but there, there is a technical way to do it it takes a little bit of practice to find the different uh resonators in a sing it's the same for singing like if you sing nasally you're singing projecting up here in your forehead and if you sing low it's down here in your chest right and so there's different places from which a, a voice can resonate same with singing and screaming and uh you can blend them or mix them and stuff like that once you learn how to harness the different uh resonators essentially Cool, cool. So sort of proceeding from that, listening to some some of the music uh, you guys do, um, I was thinking a lot about like what we term Christian art in mm-hmm. essence. Like you think a lot about, like obviously when you think about Christian art, people are thinking about uh, a band like uh, like DC Talk, which has its, its, right, uh, right. Has its, its Christian themes front and center in the music. But like you also look at uh, some other bands I've really liked, like uh, Paige France or Sufjan Stevens, some of these groups that talk about Christian themes, but they're like not as present. Or I think about like the films of like even a director like Martin Scorsese, who uh, has made many films explicitly about his Christian faith or his Catholic Catholicism and like sort of how he wrestles with that in his own life. And I feel like Emery kind of fits into that tradition. So I'm wondering. Wait, are we more Scorsese than DC Talk? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're All more right. on that. <laughs> uh, where you are talking about this stuff and how it relates to your life, but it is like, uh, I don't want to say you're artist first and Christian second, because that's like a really, like a really bad way of like distilling somebody's identity. But like, mm-hmm. how do you think about approaching these themes through your own songs, through your own music? Well, I feel a particular freedom. Uh, I don't know, maybe somebody would call it privilege, but I feel a particular freedom. Like I don't really care about identity stuff. So for instance, that wouldn't offend me or bother me. I, like I don't walk around with this mindset of, well, I'm Christian first. And as a Christian, I, I mean, I don't really even view that that way personally. Sure. Um, I feel, I just, I would like to say I feel more mature than that, but it may just be some type of you know, privilege I have because, or I don't know, I'm not sure how to think about that, but I have no, I don't even, you know, I don't try to thwart the the label of Christian music, but just because it's fine, if that's the way you want to describe it, if that's the way you want to talk about it, if you want to call it Christian art, I'm not going to protest that. So if that's the category it fits in and that's the context in which you receive it, feel free. But it doesn't matter to me how anybody perceives it or what category they put in it. So I tend to just go ahead and embrace even the silliest and cheesiest, oh, you want to call it screamo or something that's, even if it's pejorative, then I'm not, I'm not going to go out there and worry about how my image is managed and perceived. I just, I'm just going to do what I feel like doing. And if, if those things are there and people want to call it or label it a thing, I, I, I don't resist that. So, but I don't really think of creating are any differently if I was had no faith or a different faith. I don't think it impacts it uh, from the... I understand the, there's themes in lyrics and stuff like that, but, right. but it, it, you know, most of being in a band or creating art is these really practical decision-making things like chord progressions or notes or marketing. Or, you know, it has nothing to do with faith, most of it. Yeah. You know, sometimes it'll be a lyrical theme, and if people latch onto that and label it, that's fine. But I don't really think about it. 
What's what's your favorite chord progression then? Are you are, <laughs> are you a fan of the sort of the famous? Uh, I I can't even remember what it is, but it's the famous one that so many pop songs have been built off of. They do a bunch of those YouTube videos where they demonstrate that the chord progressions are all the same, and I believe that would be a one four six five or yeah. one five six four. I think maybe, um, and that's a good one, of course. But I try to avoid the ones that that would be the most cheesy or cliche. I came from a place in the rural South and I grew up in just what I think is the worst music culture ever. It was just, <laughs> everything was super, before I knew how to play music, I knew that the music that people were playing was boring and easy to play. Like it was Hootie and the Blowfish and right. stuff like that. And then bad worship, really bad church music and worship music and just the really capos and acoustic guitars and flip-flops and stuff that I just thought, I knew it was silly when when I was in middle school and high school. So when I heard, you know, more outside or alternative music, I thought it was really neat. So I've always had, uh, like, I've always wanted to create stuff that didn't sound like everything else, uh, you know, but still, I still always wanted to make it catchy and accessible. But tr- I try to avoid, as a real analytical guy, doing the same types of things that that other people do. So I go to great lengths to identify chord progressions that are mm, left of center or just off or whatever. But a chord progression that I do like a lot is just the, the utilization of the one chord to the three chord. Um, that one is a, is a little bit a weak, weaker sound. It's not really, really strong, but sure. it's a little bit, it can have a little bit of a uh, melancholy or sadness to it or almost a Edward Scissorhand mu- soundtracky kind of very dramatic feel to it if you can make it stick. So, you know, playing around with the one and three chord in interesting ways is interesting to me. You mentioned growing up in the rural South and a lot of your uh, biography, you and the other the other guys, both on the podcast and in the band, uh, mm-hmm. uh, is sort of based around moving from there to a larger urban area. You're in Seattle now. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, like that is also sort of my story. Like I grew up in a rural area, moved to Los Angeles, and I have like my own reasons for why I needed and wanted to do that. But I'm wondering like, what was it that made you want to get out of where you grew up and get to a place like Seattle? And like, what were, like, what was the biggest culture shock for you when you got there? Cause I certainly, when I got to LA, I was like, Oh, this is, this is nothing like what I expected. <laughs> I bet. Um, well, so I think we lived in, I mean, I just really am happy about the time in which I grew up and, and, and even live currently. And it was a perfect window where I had really good ideas that there was a lot of interesting stuff in culture and stuff that was out there because I had some access to media and internet and stuff like that, maybe in the year 2099. Sure. Like I knew there was great stuff going on in pl- other places because I had access to find out and believe. And it was accessible kind of a thing. We had the ability to just go somewhere like it was a interesting time um i didn't feel locked down i felt like there's no reason not to move somewhere and try it out it didn't seem scary at all it seemed fun and we could go there and we could come back if we didn't like it so we felt a pretty good vibe about just going to try something uh and i think even today with the internet so uh penetrating as it is maybe you I would have talked ourselves out of it and said, well, we could stay here and do anything you could do there. We have all this internet and all this other stuff. So it was this perfect window that was really enticing to do a physical move, really sounded like something really fun and exciting and aggressive and promising. Right. And so we chose Seattle almost on a whim just because it was the farthest away. And, and I, I didn't know have any real concept of what it would be like. I just knew that it would be 
very different than where I was. And so we kind of arrived at Seattle almost arbitrarily. I know there was grunge bands out of there and stuff, but that that's about it. I'd always dreamed of Seattle or going there or something because I like Nirvana and that's what got me into music and all that. And so we just kind of arbitrarily chose Seattle and we just got in the car and drove out there when we graduated college and, you know, had no no clue what we were in for. So I don't know that I even had any real expectation unless except for I thought maybe people be wearing flannel shirts or something. I don't know. I had no <laughs> idea. But when we got there, it was, um, you know, I had no, I was, we were still kind of intimidated by the city itself. So we didn't move immediately to the city. We moved straight to a suburb because we had no business even freaking crossing the street at, at stoplights and much less parking or, you know, we had no grip on how to like, mitigate the city itself. So we moved to a rural suburb of Seattle just to get acclimated. But um, the thing that was interesting about the culture was the uh, music scene was all pop punk and ska, which I had not anticipated exactly. I didn't really know what it was locally. It was just a small little local scene, but it wasn't that much hardcore stuff. And it was almost all pop punk, this fast ska stuff like that. And everything was kind of, ha- the music scene was a little bit happy-go-lucky and kind of fun, at least in the punk scene. I think the indie scene was real serious and like image conscious and hipster and all that in the urban city. But what we were doing was going to Tacoma and these other places. And we kept just running to these really young, happy-go-lucky punk and ska bands. And their music was real fast. And I didn't like that kind of music at the time. And I was like, well, that's this is silly. This is dumb. But it wound up kind of penetrating our music a little bit and taking our really slow, long, drony songs. And we wound up seeing that that music is fun. It is fun when you see it live. And we'd never seen any concerts hardly where we were from. So I know that sounds silly, but we hadn't hardly even seen any concerts. Oh, so sure, yeah. when, when we saw people playing these faster punk beats or people dancing to ska music, it was like, wait a minute, I get it. I see why people like this. This is really fun. And so we, we it really served to, you know, pep our music up and get into the real world of, yeah, why don't we have some faster things here? So this slow, heavy stuff that we thought we were trying to do at the time. Yeah. So that it was a surprise musically, culturally wise. And then just as far as the the culture at large, Seattle uh, was way nicer. Like it wasn't as intimidating as I, I thought it would be. Like, like I said, we were city phobic at the time. So I started, I started listening to your podcast in the wake of the 2016 election um, mm-hmm. because I had ha- I, I've struggled with my own faith over the years and had just sort of like got into a place where I was like, well, so many people I know back home voted for Donald Trump on the mm-hmm. grounds of like thinking he was the Christian choice for the nation. And I don't mm-hmm. necessarily want to like get like talk to you about that so much as to me, it, I, I always felt like when I was in church, like as a teenager, especially like politics was almost above like talking about God or talking about like faith or anything like that. And I guess Mm -hmm. I just want to talk with you a little bit about, do you think that like the church's political mission in some way superseded its other missions uh, and whether you think that was a good or bad thing on the whole? Oh yeah. I mean, definitely it's done that and definitely it's a bad thing for Mm -hmm. sure. I mean, I, yeah, I completely agree. You know, I I don't even, yeah, it makes no sense to me, to be honest. Like I I really don't get it. Um, I could speculate on why, I mean, I, I often do speculate on what I think drives people and why they do stuff like that, but it seems inherently goofy to me. I think if I'm speculating that people just, they, they gravitate toward the thing that seems like the most important that's also the farthest away from them personally. Like that's right. comfortable for people. So one hero, leader, or 
single issue thing that's distant from actual decisions and your behavior in your life that you can get behind. You can justify it as I'm doing the most overall good because this is the most important thing overall. And it doesn't really challenge me personally. And that's, that's pathetic, to be honest. It's, la- it's lazy. And I don't, I don't think it represents, I mean, I don't think it serves anybody really well or represents Christianity worth a shit, mm. honestly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Does that make sense? That's it, a relatively vague answer. But what, I mean, who cares? I mean, I, I'm contrarian, but I just say, who cares about all this? I, I don't want more things, to, people and more things to enter into national conversations that don't have that much to do with them, frankly, right. that they don't have that much. I mean, I'm not that interested in the in, in the national stuff and politics personally. The thing that always drew me to uh, church that I always got into in church was like sitting there and contemplating, I guess, kind of the mysteries of existence, like all the things we don't know, all the things we can never know that ostensibly God might know or even, you know, some Christian mm-hmm. theologians would say doesn't know. Um, but I, I found that invigorating. And yet all around me, like I found that people were looking for pat answers to these yeah. difficult questions. And mm-hmm. I found that really frustrating. Um, and I've like I've discovered as I've gone back to church as an adult that like not every church is that way. But it mm-hmm. seems to me like you kind of grew up in that culture as well. Yes. Um, I was fortunate enough to have, I mean, looking back on it, at least I would say it's fortunate. I, I grew up in that culture, but the church that my parents went to was re- more of a liberal church. Okay. I, I, but so I think I can speak to that mentality a little bit. Um because at some point it became attractive to me in my 20s when I kind of found faith for myself to I was pretty turbocharged on the notion of wait a second you can figure out real answers and have certainty which uh in the context I grew up in I felt like the super fundamentalist and evangelical people were you know a little lower intelligent and just simple and it se- didn't seem that attractive but when I got older I fell into what I now see as a little bit of a trap of intellectual uh, fundamentalism or something. Sure. I don't know if that's a term, but I was like, oh, these smart people believe that there are real answers that you can discern from the Bible and get really into it and figure stuff out and have definitive answers. And at, in my 20s, I found that wildly attractive. And it could be not dumb or just silly passive religion for the masses. It sounded promising to me. And so I d- kind of dove in and w- did seek to find you know, stuff that was more I don't want to use the word empirical, but more objective and and truth, absolute truth and stuff that, you know, having gone through that and pursued it and matured, I I like to use the language of matured past even that, um, although I'm not the height of maturity, I understand. Um, I feel like I went in pursuing that, have now kind of seen even through that and have come out the other side to unfortunately having to embrace mystery and those things like that. There's nothing else left for me to do, but try to embrace and explore and understand the mystery. And I think that's a more mature view and maybe one of the only very reasonable ways to approach Christianity and and at this time, or at least in this culture. So, you know, people want to figure, they want answers. I mean, you can't blame them for that. Right. Right. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, maybe there's answers there, right? So you got to try to figure it out. If the, if it could be there, I mean, I understand why people are looking hard, but on the other side, the laziness of just being spoon-fed something to not be. I tell you where I do differ and never have been in the territory of is 
fear. I'm not, I've never been scared of stuff. Like I've never been scared to explore the truth or I don't need some moral answers just to be safe. Like that, that's never been attractive to me. I'd I'd say that, that that's what I find the laziest is when there's fear mongering inherent in the traditions and the, this really parenty vibe that, a lot of Christianity and, and faith stuff has where it's overly moralistic and that's just to control people and give them easy answers and so that they can feel safe. That has always been, uh, had a little bit of a stench to it to me. Sure, sure. You guys have, the, the guests you have on the podcast, and I haven't listened to all, I think you have over 300 episodes tonight. I haven't listened to all of them, mm-hmm. but I've been listening, I've listened to about a year, years worth of them. The guests you wow, have. Wow, I appreciate it. How did you find it? Uh, I just was, I was looking for religion and spirituality podcasts again in the wake of the election because I, I wanted to reconnect mm-hmm. with that part of myself uh, just in terms of like, I wanted to know like why so many people I knew felt this one-to-one connection that mm-hmm. to me didn't seem to exist. And like yes. finding your podcast sort of helped me a, realized there was a, another way to think about this and that other people were like struggling with that question as well um, in, in much more public forums than my own. Um, and I, I guess like one of the things that I'm interested in is you have a lot of guests on who tend to be like going through some of the same journeys as you guys are in like mm-hmm. think, struggling with these things, thinking these things out, uh, thinking about like how we talk about concepts like sin and, and salvation and forgiveness mm-hmm. and all of that in a world that is increasingly, you know, where in a country, I should say, where Christianity is increasingly not the default, like it's still the largest religion, but there are far mm-hmm. more people who are, who are not Christian than there would have been like when I was growing up. And um, so I, I guess like what, what I'm sort of coming around to asking is like, do you have conversations with those people who feel that what you're doing is, I don't know, not helpful or feel that it's anti-Christian in some way? Like, do you have conversations yeah, yeah, with course. people in the church who feel very differently from you? Yeah, of course. And I just, I try to make it my business to, that's like, to me, that's okay. And sometimes to them, it isn't okay. But I mean, it's it's okay with me. If you, it doesn't really bother me personally if somebody thinks what I'm doing is evil. Like, even that doesn't actually offend me. I I don't know if it's a a thick skin or whatever. I understand why they would think that. And so my approach is to go, yeah, I understand why you think that. That's, I, I can understand that. But that doesn't mean I. You're, that doesn't make me make you my enemy, you know. I mean, I don't. I don't. I don't. I. I think that's one of the saddest things we've got going on is that everybody's eager to identify enemies, and I don't think we have any. I mean, I just don't. I mean, I think ISIS is our enemy, I guess. You know, like, but maybe some Russian stuff. But sure. I don't. I don't really. I feel safe in in this American context, and I don't hope, hope I'm not naive, but I feel pretty safe. I don't feel like. I just don't feel animosity with people that think different than I do. Even if they think I'm silly or stupid, that's that's reasonable to me. I can see why they would think that. So I, I try to push through that uh, that boundary as much as I can and, and demonstrate, well, I'm not taking it that seriously. And if you want to, that's feel, feel free. But I think you're being a little silly if you want to get that upset about something that I'm trying to explore or joke about. Right. That, that I think if you, and I don't want that person to look silly or feel stupid or, or, or something, but it's not, it's not, I don't think it's the end of the world. I mean, really, I don't think we're the people I disagree with or even opponents of mine are not my enemies. I don't think, but other people seem to gravitate toward that. 
What do you think is like, how, uh, that's a thing that a lot of people are struggling with right now, especially as we're, we're releasing this episode. We're recording it in October, but it's being released uh, sort of at the start of the holiday season. So a lot of people are going home to their families and struggling to find common ground on some of these issues. Like you seem to be really good at like even people you really disagree with, just, just finding somewhere where you guys can meet and talk about it. Like, mm-hmm. like what, is, what is sort of your strategy when it comes to talking to people that uh, you disagree with about finding common ground, about finding ways to talk about these difficult subjects without, uh, you know, wanting to kill each other? Well, you know, I have, I have a like a push and pull with that. I, I think it's just too, it's it, when you get on a podcast, I mean, you, I, think you probably could affirm this when when you get somebody and you ask them to be a guest even if you disagree with them now you're face to face with them on this Skype chat or whatever and you've got a it's kind of hard to disagree with them and I have more concern the other way that we're too easy on people or don't express or just like sure. get somebody on that says stuff that I think's damaging and act, and almost act like I affirm it or just let it pass which I don't I'm not that worried about making the, my stand or anything but I wish we had a little bit more guts to I wish that I had a little bit more skill in challenging beliefs even more so. I would like to, that's a, a skill that I'm working on personally, Is but that's the art of this conversational thing or podcasting and interviewing is to try to represent multiple points of views in a way that can be very disagreeable but respectful. Mm-hmm. And then maybe you can start to get the heart of the idea or something like that. And then there's the subtle stuff where you can not you don't have to hammer somebody over the head to demonstrate you're on the right side and they're on the wrong side there's an art to like letting them tie their own noose sometimes and not saying and i think you're stupid and i think that's wrong you don't even have to say that if you know the context of your audience and they know things that i've said before maybe they can infer by a hanging question that i will leave or a a pause that that person's starting to sound silly or wrong or their idea bad idea may be exposed on its own without me having to necessarily, you know, hammer it directly. So I think that's a, a weird art, but of course I want to find common ground with people. Like I don't, not trying to bring people on and do gotcha journalism or anything. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what, what, you've talked a lot in the show sort of about your own evolving uh, beliefs or your own evolving, like, like uh, things that you're, you're kind of struggling with or wrestling with, um, in particular over the history of the podcast, you've really talked about mm-hmm. uh, LGBT issues. And that mm-hmm. is like a really fraught thing within the church at this time, um, especially mm-hmm. with the, I think it was the Nashville statement of a couple months ago. And I, I guess what I'm wondering is like when people were talking to you about this and seeking to change your mind, like what were the ways that you came to sort of, uh, what, who, how were things that people said to you ways that helped you come to think about these issues in a different way? Well, this may be the sad part about it, but it's, I don't know if the direct people directly trying to change anybody's view is even that effective. I mean, it's, Mm -hmm. I I would, I would, uh, I'd I'd resort to going all the way back to saying simple relationships and passive interactions with people are the most shaping. And then sometimes verbal communication, conversation, cognitive efforts can impact those things too. So the, the biggest thing on something like an LGBT issue would be, I mean, this sounds silly, but just being exposed to it, being around it, having, you know, living in Seattle. And I have a lot better point of view than I did in South Carolina. So sure. that's way before anybody has to say a bunch of words to me or lay out a logical argument or engage with me directly to change my mind on that. It's a, it's a, 
it's a a wide cultural palette and having traveled the world and seen the country a bunch and met enough people to get a grip is is the the most way that I've ever seen anybody's views change. So that's probably the most fundamental. And then the good news about conversation is if you know, you I think through podcasting, even just in itself, just hearing other people talk to other people, but not me directly. That's what I love about podcasting is kind of this indirect uh, way. You don't feel combated or threatened or talked to. I I feel like I'm participating in a conversation with, you know, Joe Rogan and whoever he's talking to, like, and I can just absorb that without it. It's not intended to directly come at me or change my mind or lay out something in a speech. It's just it's still as passive. And that, I think you absorb stuff and then you make the c- connections in your brain and somewhat unconscious a lot of times. And then you realize at some point in the future that you think differently than you used to. But you almost are never changing your beliefs directly or in inst- in a single instant or even you're usually not even aware that your beliefs change and you certainly don't have the power to decide to change your beliefs. But right. that's just not how that that's just not how they work. I mean, good luck. Uh I'll give you a million dollars if you can fully believe in Allah and you know tomorrow. Right. You know what I mean? You you won't you can pretend to, but you won't be able to. You won't be able to believe the Torah every word in it tomorrow if you don't believe it. You can't. I mean, you can't just decide what you believe. It's, it's an, you know, so when people try to, that's what's so sick about where we're at right now is a bunch of people yelling at each other to change your mind right now. Do it. And it's not going to work. What if hiring could be easier, more streamlined and less time consuming? So even when you're busy, you could still be smart about the way you hire. That's where ZipRecruiter comes in. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards with just one click, so you can rest easy knowing your job is being seen by the right candidates. Then ZipRecruiter puts its smart matching technology to work, actively notifying qualified candidates about your job within minutes of posting, so you receive the best possible matches. Unlike other hiring sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on the right candidates finding you. It finds them. You can even get a head start on the interview process by adding screening questions to your job post to help identify the most qualified candidates. It's no wonder 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. And the easy-to-use dashboard lets you manage your hiring process from start to finish, all in one place. ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire. Right now, my listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash think. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash think. One more time to try it for free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash think. You you mentioned relationships and uh, a, a pretty good friend of mine, Stephanie Drury, who I think has been on your mm-hmm. show before, has has always sort of maintained that like religion should be more about relationships than like dogma, mm-hmm. than like having rules and ways of living or, or whatever. And I do th- like I do think about in this world where everything is politicized, where we've taken you know every like every argument we have on social media inevitably like turns into even if you're arguing mm-hmm. about your favorite tv show or something like inevitably it starts to skew toward the political and in some ways that's good i think that has helped raise our awareness of like suffering communities suffering individuals people mm-hmm. who that's need to, people who needed to have their their stories told and just hadn't before but at the same time like 
it's really bad at fostering those relationships. And I'm wondering, like, when you look at building relationships in your own life, like, do you see a way that uh, Christianity or the church or, like, any religion can find a way to build space for those relationships to come together? Yes, I do. So there's two things I'd say about that question. I totally agree with you. Um, I think that the part of the problem with the where we're at in communication information is, and this wouldn't be my words, and I don't remember who said it, but it's like we have the information superhighway, the information connection, but the uh, but that's way out of balance with the either emotional side or physical side. So mm-hmm. it's just information, which is disembodied. That's that's not what we're really built for. I mean, a bunch of characters across the screen, even if they're sound logically and true or right or have a good point, that's disembodied. I mean, that's we we're these full beings that have emotions and I don't know, like you know, just there's an embodiment part about looking at somebody or talking to them or the dynamics of being in a group with eight people versus eight thousand followers. They're different, and so we're kind of in an immature age of this. I don't see that as necessarily that bad of a thing. I hope we'll sure. get through some of the stuff and develop more technologies that allow us more empathetic and full spectrum communications than we're doing right now. But I think that's largely a consequence of you know the infancy of of this wild information sharing we're doing right now. Um, but as it would pertain to faith or Christianity or anything in general, uh, I don't know, Christians are known for being like the most as much intolerant as, maybe not as intolerant as you can get, but they seem to be pretty intolerant is the reputation. And that is an earned reputation, I think. Mm-hmm. I think it's, I think that's true. I, 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 in fact, I think that, it, I think that's the way it mostly is, unfortunately. And so, I am in a space where I would feel like saying that the only way past that is to, I think the key to it is like a a total acceptance. I mean, you could use the word grace from the Christian tradition, but I'm going to, I'm going to translate it to acceptance, like, uh, like a radical acceptance of other people. It seems to be, um, and, and, and I mean that on a big level, but I really just on an individual level, I, I would parallel that to just my relationship with my wife and, um, like, for instance, when I was dating my wife, I, she didn't have the same faith that I did, and that bothered me. And so I wanted to be involved with her, and I wanted to get married to her, and I wanted to move forward with her, but I wasn't willing to do that until she cleaned up her act or started thinking the right way or got right in my view. And that was horrible and abusive and bad and ineffective, counterproductive and wrong. Right. And it took a lot of grief, years and years of of nonsense that I thought was her fault, but it's always my fault, looking back on it. And um, especially because she had come from a, um, this is just an individual level, but I think it makes sense. She had come from a place of a family that's less stable and some trauma in her background, and she always felt fundamentally unaccepted as a person and things she was doing and not good enough. And so you can only imagine how some asshole like me treating her that way would further the problem and cause other reactions and stuff like that. And it was only in spite of me when, when I understood the damage I'd done, which I actually think was a, is, was a, is a man is actually a spiritual communication to me that helped me, my eyes to be, to be open to what I was actually doing in that uh, relationship that I could accept her without an agenda. And then it was like, whoa, that just worked. Right. <laughs> I mean, it just worked. You know, when I accepted her for who she was, then she was free to uh, 
she could felt the security of that uh, acceptance from me. And then everything else kind of fell into place. I mean, not that everything's that great or perfect or anything, but night and day from before and after that revelation that I had. And I think that would apply to anything, even to groups. If you want to talk about LGBT people in church, or anytime a Christian gets around somebody and they start trying to befriend a, quote, sinner, it stinks. It smells. You know there's an agenda behind it. You know it's a temporary acceptance until you can eventually get right. And then, you know what I mean? Like the agenda is there and everybody knows it and everybody smells it and it doesn't work. So the real grace, I think the way the gospel really is or the way Jesus really would be, you would not feel or smell that agenda where I'll invite my sinner neighbors over for tonight and show them that I love them, but they know that that's only, that you only have a certain amount of time before you would have to convert or do this or that that will end. They, they know that they're a project for you, mm. you know? And yeah. so that 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 stinks and it smells and everybody's wise. It may have worked in the past, but we're, everybody's keen to it now. And I think we need to knock that off. If I mean, real relationships have to be without agenda. Right, right. Your your story about your your courtship with your wife, I I, I really like that, and I, I it made me think of something else I wanted to talk about with you, which is your your most recent episode uh, is kind of where uh, at the time we're recording, this is where uh, Toby mm-hmm. is sort of leading you all in the discussion of like. What is the place of masculinity, basically, oh, yeah, in modern yeah. America? And Rough like, topic. The, yeah, like that's a that's a tough thing to talk about because certainly, like, you know, uh, we want to leave room for, uh, you know, the masculine impulses in everybody, both men and women. Um, but also, we, um, you know, we're, we're sort of starting to understand how, like, the ways that that has been emphasized has been harmful to people within certain institutions. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, especially as we're recording this in the wake of, like, the Harvey Weinstein revelations, things like that. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering, like, what do you see as, um, like, what do you see as the way that conversation is shifting in the church, which I think is really, um, really has had a lot of, of focus on, like, masculinity. And I remember, you know, there was sort of a sort of attempt to make Jesus super masculine, which Mm -hmm. seemed strange to me. Um, But like, what what do you think the place of, I guess, masculinity is like, what do you see being a good man to mean in the year 2017? Well, I love the topic. It's a a minefield, like many ones I think are important. But um, I, I think you know, first of all, that thing about trying to reinvent a masculine Jesus, it, it it's definitely goofy, but I definitely mm-hmm. fell into it. And I think there is even a reason why that occurred uh, that's reasonable. And that's because, you know, we, we've got a couple thousand years of Jesus and the Bible being, I mean, it did maybe become feminized a little bit before that. And, and it maybe did. That maybe is true that we've seen Jesus as just only one side of him and it's the nice, soft and charitable and it's churches for women and, you know, people of the clergy are extra. It's not necessarily masculine or feminine, but it's a little bit of the softness is the part that got selected for in culture over time. So there's reasonably some pushback on that, but it turned out to be kind of a uh, a untapped thing for some some people and some manipulators to put on this hyper-masculine Jesus and it became effective for... luring in and attracting men who were tuned out to what they did see as a softened, just the soft, frilly religion, 
church, church lady, stained glass, handbell choirs. I mean, that that that's the domain for a lot of people of what they imagine church to be. Right. So there was some room for reactionary stuff there, some pendulum swing. But it was kind of co-opted and used as an aggressive growth strategy and hyper-masculine and, and some of it to some degree that became abusive also. Mm-hmm. So those, those things, I think, kind of fit together. Um, but, you know... The church, the way they deal with masculinity is a little bit weird. And it, and in specifically, there's two schools of thought if, if people aren't familiar with what Christians think about and talk about in their doctrine. And, the, and it comes down to complementarian and egalitarian uh, theologies, meaning that men and women are different and they complement each other in complementarianism, that they have defined roles per each gender that fit together, sure. um, which doesn't mean they're not equal in value or dignity or worth. It just means that they typically or or prescriptively have different roles. And then egalitarianism, which means there there are no prescriptive roles for men and women in church, home, parenting, and it's whatever works, works. And that both of those have Christian-based theologies that can be defended. But um, I think a lot of people have, you know, I think both points of view have some reasonable ideas, but I have shifted from being uh, complementarian to egalitarian over time. Um, and I don't know if that's a trend. I think maybe more people are that way, but uh, I think there's plenty of room for discussion in there personally. Right, right. Yeah. Although I land on the more progressive and egalitarian side at this point. So sure. I've moved to that. Sure, sure. Well, you, you've talked a lot about abusive behavior and, and, and things like that. Like how, how do you see in your own life? Like where do you, how do you set boundaries for yourself to, um, you know, uh, to make sure you're not slipping over into that sort of uh, behavior? Well, it's really a pain to do the self-examination now, isn't it? I don't, I mean, that's just what you got to do, though. Yeah. You know, you just have to drop your ego enough to assess the stuff. Like, I really have some masculine roles at my house, but I just have to make sure that I'm not thinking of them prescriptively and just thinking of them individually. And that's right. the way you got to treat race and every other thing. It's not necessarily easy, though. It's natural to be, it's probably natural to be sexist and racist and everything, to be honest. It's just easier. It's just a little bit lazy. Uh, And I think it's typically driven by uh, fear, uh, self-preservation, ego, and laziness more than evil. But because I noticed the same thing. I'm like, I I like building stuff and hammering and screwing and painting. You know, I I love doing the construction in my house. And of course, I'm the one that takes out the trash. And I definitely think my wife should change more diapers than me. Mm -hmm. Now, that, but I got to say, hang on a second there. You know, what could we, can I move from that? In, first of all, is that even true? Is that true? You know, or, and even if it is true, do I want to reinforce that, reinforce that further? Or would I like to untangle that a little bit is, is kind of where I'm at. But that's, I just has, that's just my natural impulse. So, you know, I don't at all think my wife's the one supposed to cook and clean or whatever. I just feel like some of the stuff that I do is more masculine in general. And so naturally the thought occurs to me that the things that are more feminine in nature, well, you worry about that, honey, you know, but that can be destructive or abusive if not caught, been aware of, regulate, you know, just examine basically. So I seek to counteract that as best as I can, but, you know. Yeah. And I, I just try to be aware of it and self-examine and try to communicate about it and ask. But of course, if my wife was into, if she could hang, you know, drywall and was into it, I'd be all about it. Of course. I would lo- I'd love to do it with her if she was into that, for instance. You know, yeah. that'd be, it'd be super fun. Yeah. The, the, I find often the tricky thing is avoiding 
just fundamentalism. And I don't mean that in mm-hmm. terms of Christian fundamentalism or Islamic fundamentalism or whatever. I just mean mm-hmm. the idea that there is a set of rules that works best for everybody. And if you just follow those rules, uh, you're going to be great. And if somebody mm-hmm. else isn't, you can tell them exactly what to do. And like, that's right. Uh, I mean, I grew up Christian fundamentalist and then when, in my early 20s swung way over toward like, I guess I'd sort of call it like a progressive fundamentalism where I was like, this is the only way people should (laughs) be able to live. And like, um, when you are, when you're like, when you're thinking about that in terms of like, uh, finding ways to interrogate yourself instead of blaming society or blaming another person or Mm -hmm. blaming like a, a community, like, because there are certainly societal ills and there are certainly issues within certain communities that need to be dealt with. Like, how do you sort of keep that balance, especially as we look at like all of the ways and privileges and things that like have existed for a long time that maybe we haven't paid attention to. And I'm using we to mean you and myself as white, white straight men living in America. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean the, the, what's the right words for this? The improper imposition of population and group level stuff onto individual stuff is always a problem. Mm-hmm. I mean, just when you take something about a group and try and apply it to an individual, you have messed up. And if when you take something about individuals and try to extrapolate that to a group, you me- you're messing up. I mean, those are shortcuts and they there's pitfalls in those shortcuts. And so it's not easy. I mean, it's just the lazy way. It's just the easy way to do that. And so if it's fundamentalism or whatever it is, that's what that that's the goal of it is to try to simplify everything down into giving you a program or right and wrong or these people are this way or this behavior is this way it's the same mentality it's like you know what this behavior is a very specific thing in fact we'll go so far as to make it a moral thing and or a good versus evil thing and that way we won't it'll keep people away from the bad stuff or something but that's obviously you know reductionist or oversimplified or abusive i mean so and, and it could be any of those in combination but that's what is going on it's the wrong application of uh, group stuff to individual stuff, I think. Sure. Or, which is just a natural tendency we have. Sure. Uh, you got to fight it. Uh, uh, are you familiar with the uh, book, The End of White Christian America by Robert P. Jones? I am um, not. Uh, I'll, I'll just, I'll, he's the head of the Public Religion Research Institute. I'm going to, I read it last year and it explained, honestly explained a lot of 2016 to me, but uh, I'll just sort of summarize his thesis really quickly, which is basically, White Christian churches were like the center of American public discourse from basically 1776 to about like 1990. Mm-hmm. And then things started to really change and shift. And like we we did see the shift from mainline Protestant denominations to evangelical denominations. But now we're seeing even evangelical denominations sort of starting to falter mm-hmm. in terms of church membership, things like that. And mm-hmm. he's, sa- he's saying that a lot of the, I guess you'd say, a lot of the frantic, what looks like to non-Christians frantic desperation on the part of some of these churches to get involved in political issues or to maintain membership Maybe. or something is like an offshoot of this general decline overall. And that has led to, that has led to like, um, I guess I'd say, you know, being aligned with certain things that maybe to me as a more progressive Christian seem like they're not great ideas. Like, uh, uh, you know, being aligned with, um, uh, just for a lack of a, uh, a better, uh, uh, scenario, the, um, 
being allied with the people who are against the NFL protesters, for instance, the people who are right. not standing for the anthem. And I guess I'm wondering if you see any truth in that, if like that there is this immense identity bound up in being a white Christian American that mm-hmm. has become almost separate from Christianity itself. Yes. Oh, yeah. I, I do agree with that. I hadn't heard that theory put exactly that way, but I, I it, it rings pretty true to me. Um, are, are you saying that he's that is like a last grasp at power, a last yeah. like, resort to yeah. escalate it, to, to, to hold the power that they have left and gravitate toward the, the more po- powerful forces than the one just saying, let's, the, the general typical tenets of Christianity, we're having to uh, try to access and weaponize these larger scale phenomenons that are popular in order to maintain power? Yeah. He, he's basically, mm-hmm. he wrote it long before the, the rise of Trump, but he mm-hmm. is basically using the data that exists of like church membership falling to uh, talk about this larger theme of like, yes, the, the church is now sort of attempting to make this last stand for what it sees as decency. Yeah, well, probably. I mean, there's at least some of that at play. And I, that's, I mean, it's not okay, but I try to take a lot, you know, I understand people have a disagreement with my passiveness. And again, they would just point to it coming out of privilege, but you, you've not, you, there has to be some amount of time it will take to change. So there's one approach that would say, if so, let them have their last grasp here for a little while. And just let's try not to burn the whole place to the ground in the meantime, which is partly the way I feel. But that's, you say, well, that's not easy to say because some people are, are being abused or being harmed as a result of this. And we must act now. Well, maybe, but to some degree to what, I don't know. I'm a little bit worried about burning the whole thing to the ground in the meantime, maybe Mm. through this power transition, but I'm fine with that. Um, even if there is, this is the last grasp and then, then good, it's on the way out. Okay. Is is, is a positive way to look at that or a generational, maybe we should be looking at things in a generational approach and maybe other people, I understand that we don't have time for that. Maybe. Um, but, I, I think that's probably right that we'll see a power transition, but have you ever seen a power transition go really well? I mean, <laughs> yeah. have, have you ever seen people's fundamental identity be threatened to where they become agitated and afraid? I mean, what? how do you think they're going to act? I mean, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I, I can't think of any other group. I, I don't know that it's inherent in whiteness. <laughs> I really don't think it is that any group in power will not try to let go of it when their fundamental identity is threatened from their perception because perception is reality to them. So I don't expect them to just get in line if we throw the right tweets at them or show them the right graphs. I don't think they're about to have their mind changed. So sure, sure. I don't know if you want to, how much more you want to agitate them or, or, or create a further chasm. But, you know, I can understand the other point of view on that. Well, but look, I'm with you. I think, I mean, I'm not for them. I'm not with them. I don't think they represent me. I don't think they represent Jesus or Christianity very well at all. So you listen to podcasts. By now, you've probably tried a meal kit or two. You might have noticed that, you know, you're cutting up vegetables, you're working on your knife skills, you're doing stuff, and 30 minutes turns into 60, and then you realize you're just paying to do all the work. 
Now, that will end after you try Freshly. Freshly is a weekly prepared meal service that delivers fresh, never frozen, all natural meals developed by their team of chefs and nutritionists. They are fully cooked, so all you have to do is heat them up. Each meal is ready to eat in just three minutes. There's no more worrying about what's for dinner. There's no shopping. There's no chopping. There's no cleanup. But there's also no artificial ingredients, preservatives, or added sugars. And I've tried a number of these Freshly meals. I've, I've liked them all. Uh, if, if you're stuck on something to try, try the Mediterranean shrimp bowl, uh, very tasty, or the uh, Italian penne sausage, uh, I thought was was great stuff too. So if you want to get two weeks of meals cooked for you at $40 off, go to Freshly.com slash interesting. That's for $20 off for each of your first two orders. Freshly.com slash interesting, or you can use the code interesting at checkout. Shipping is always free. That's Freshly.com slash interesting. I look at like folks like you guys and uh, or like Jen Hatmaker or um, uh, Rachel Held Evans, some of these people who are in this next generation of Christian thinkers, Christian leaders, and like it is that real sort of generational divide. Certainly, there are more. Um, I guess you'd say there are there are folks who are Christians in, in that generation who would agree more with the older generation. Do you think the way of like depoliticizing the religion, depoliticizing the church? at least in the United States, it's just a generational thing? Or do you think there's a way to do that on a more short-term time frame? Well, I don't leave it to the leadership of large power structures to make any meaningful change personally. Mm -hmm. That's just, I'm not interested. I don't think top-down is even, it seems like fruitless pursuit to me. I mean, it just... The larger the power structure, the less interested I am in participating in it, basically. And so that leaves me with more of the only thing we have would be uh, bottom up, which can work with enough numbers. And we have a little bit more ability with podcasts and micro communities and internet than we've had before for people to communicate, affirm one another, um, speak up. I don't know about gently. I mean, I'm not into the super aggressive uh, opposition to stuff. I don't think that's necessarily effective, but there's some ability to change within, but almost just for more an economic principle, just like if there's enough people in church that wanted their pastor's salaries to be turned over and that was the common demand, I think you would see it. Mm -hmm. But if there was enough people that were openly embracing doubt in the ranks of leadership toward the lower level, I think that would have an effect on the higher ups. I think the higher ups will respond to market pressure in most cases. And uh, I mean, kind of thing. So you can be, uh, all I intend to do is vocalize and demonstrate that you can be vocal about things. You know, you don't have to, you you know, you you should be free to tell the truth and what you think. And you probably will free up the person over beside you to do the same by just going first. So maybe I sound contrarian on our podcast or a little obnoxious, but I'm trying to give other people, I'm trying to clear out some elbow room in the jungle so that they can be a little uh, controversial in, in, at their church or right. their group or whatever. So I'm just trying to show you nothing bad happens if I tell you that I got drunk this weekend. It's okay. I mean, you, you don't have to like it. You can think it was wrong, but I'm not, I don't need to hide it. I mean, I can tell you. I mean, I can feel like I can tell the truth about almost anything in my life to a group of 50,000 Christians next week, and I will. And I don't know anybody else that can do that. So good for me, and I hope that helps people. But it's not because I'm trying to 
revel in all the bad stuff that I get to do and not be sorry for it or anything like that. I mean, that that's the way people might want to cast it. But I'm just trying to demonstrate that it's okay to be yourself, tell the truth, and not be afraid. And I think that has a positive impact on other people's openness because the lack of openness and the fear and the image management and the fakeness, this is the, these are the real toxins I think we have in our culture, or at least Christian culture. What's been your, what's been the most gratifying thing to you about that honesty, about being open with people? Like, like what, what have people really responded to that you've been maybe surprised by that they were like, oh yeah, I feel that way too, or that, that's, that's something that also affects me? Well, this is a funny one. This is completely not what you're asking for. But <laughs> no, that's fine. I, I, sometimes I do. I, I like to be. I like to ruffle a feather here or there, be non-standard about something. But I was I, I was <laughs> complaining about thank you cards the other day. Mm-hmm. Uh, for instance, this is a very trivial. But I was complaining about thank you cards on the podcast, imagining that I was pissing everybody off because everybody likes that formality and thinks it's real. I, I you know, I'm only had my mom and dad and my wife and aunts and uncles stress the importance of that type of thing to me. And I've always felt like it was so stupid. And I, but I don't think anybody vocalized stuff like that. So I was just kind of complaining about it, trying to cast it in a bad light and stuff like that. And they, um, and then I had a big swell of people on Facebook that were, you know, women and moms and other people were like, yes, totally. I hate the. I don't know why we do that. And I was like, oh, this is great. I, I thought I was being a bad, playing a villain for a little bit here. And it seems like, you know, just nobody. I mean, that's not a big deal, obviously, super trivial, but I was encouraged by that. <laughs> <laughs> well, as we kind of head into the end of the show, uh, I, I wanted to... Uh, Obviously, I've seen our listener data, and this podcast, as all Vox podcasts, is listened to by a lot of so-called coastal elites. Um, And uh, I kind of wanted to throw it to you, like, what is still to you as as a practicing Christian? Like, what do you see as, like, a harmful stereotype people have about uh, Christians in America? And then kind of the flip side of that, what do you see when you talk to maybe Christians back home? What do they see about like, you know, secular liberals on the coasts that they're just mm-hmm. not getting? Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll put it this way. I think the the caricatures and the what word did you just use for that? Miscon what Yeah, what misconception, yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know that the reputations of either side are not earned, to be honest. Okay. I really just think they're relatively earned reputations. So whatever bad stuff you want to say about Christians in general, not the most extreme ones that think they're all hate-filled, harmful, and the most dangerous thing to society. Not that view, but the general view of Christians being judgmental and self-righteous and less engaged with stuff that matters and all that, you know, all that kind of stuff. I think those are earned reputations. And I think the coastal elites have an Whatever people want to say about them, not the most extreme version of it, but that common kind of vibe you hear about coastal elites, out of touch, uh, with a lot of real people and real issues and right. uh, don't know what it's like in the real world or something. And and rightly, whatever the stereotypes are, probably earned, I think. I mean, I have a distaste for some of the you know left or far left type of mentality. I, I don't find it very honest, intellectually honest sometimes. And I, I find it like maybe naive, you know, it's just like, I'll see if I could say it this way. I'll choose a non-charged one. How about recycling? Let's talk about okay. the difference in recycling on where I grew up and in Seattle. I don't think, I don't give a lot of credit to the 
lady that lives down the block from me that's pretty militant about recycling that gives me dirty looks if I put the wrong thing in the wrong place. I don't, not that worried about it, but I, of course, participate in it. And where I'm from, they do not, they laugh if, about recycling, like hilarious, like who cares, you know? Yeah. So, but the, the, the way that somebody could be militant about recycling is just an inherited, it's not an open-minded thing. It's not an educated thing, really. It's just an inherited point of view where they go, what, what do you mean? Of course we recycle. It's, you know, but that's, if that same person was born in Alabama and was trying to go to high school in the 60s, they would have been a cheerleader and anti-segregation. That same mentality placed in a different time and different place is, is, is pro-segregation, trying to do the right thing and block the black kids from going in their high school. Same person, if you just transpose where they were born. So I don't think that the left um, coastal elites are near as open-minded as they think. They've just inherited a certain set and and inherited the notion that they're open-minded and well-versed in the way things are in the world. Mm. You know, I give myself a little bit more credit from being from one and living with the other. I like, I I understand the points of view of both. Um, And so hopefully the recycle issue there is a less charged one. But I think that reputations are earned, but the important thing is how how would you engage them to try to change or communicate or bring people to the middle or change their beliefs and understand the other? And I'm telling you, that if your mentality is purely agenda-driven to change another person and you know for sure you're not to be changed, then you've already lost in my book. So yeah. it's the way you engage the earned reputation of the other side that, that is where all, you know, that's, where, that's, what, that's what counts. Sure, sure. Do you think uh, for your own journey, how much of your shift in your own thinking came from moving to Seattle. Like I think about this of myself all the time. Like a how lot. much how yeah. much of the shift in my politics came from moving to Los Angeles versus something that was just like your own internal journey. Well, I could I mean, if I still live in South Carolina, that'd be way different. I mean, I've also been fortunate enough to travel like every city in the country a hundred times and been overseas a ton and, and met a bunch of people that there's no realistic way for I have a point of view that's not realistic for anybody else to get. But if I'd stayed in South Carolina I mean, I would be still there and I was I would be able to read articles about what Seattle was like. Mm. And then maybe that could affect me a little bit. But mm. I mean, seriously, I mean, I, that's not, 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 I could have watched Netflix shows of, of Portlandia. Yeah. I would have, you know, I could have done those things and gleaned some information about what other people are like. But so I, I don't think that that's going to do the same thing as me living in the city here for a decade and traveling the country. So, I mean, I could pers- I could say everybody should do that, but you know, if it, I don't know. Maybe everybody that lives in a, that grew up in a, in a city should go move to rural South Carolina for a decade or a, a couple of years at least. And I don't think you'll hate those people as bad if you did. I think you'd get it. Right, right. I'm, I mean, that's not practical, but it's, I think it's true. Right. Well, we're we're headed into the end of the show, which means we uh, we ask our guests some of the same questions every week. Uh, this is our first show in the holiday season, so I am, mm-hmm. I am going to ask you. Uh, our for our question for this this time of year. What's what's the best gift you've ever received and why? Oh boy, um, like let's see, a Christmas gift or something like that. Could um, be a birthday present. I don't care. Birthday <laughs> present, Christmas gift. I don't want to make up an answer. Mm-hmm. I want to give a real one if I can think of it. Um, I'm a less sentimental guy than some other people. I don't really. Um, oh, I'm sure people give me gifts that. I'm trouncing on by not even being able to recall them. Um, 
golly, I've been full of it. This whole episode of stuff to say, and I'm, you've stumped me on this one. <laughs> What's a Christmas present you got? I got nothing. Uh, um, I'd, I'd, I'll just get, go all the way back to my childhood and give that. My parents, one, one Christmas threw me, uh, I'm pretty detective type guy. I would find all my presents. And, sure. um, you know, infer from conversation and stuff that I'd asked for a thousand times what I was getting. And so I was not often surprised at what I would get. Uh, but my parents got me a, they completely threw me off the trail and had convinced me that I was not getting a, a, a bike that I wanted when it was, I was eight. Um, and, you know, they had com- completely had thrown me off and the bike they got me was way cooler than the than it was you know it would have been 1988 or something like that and i got this freestyle bike that would handlebars would spin and it had the pegs and it was orange my favorite color and you could stand on the front pegs and back pegs and do tricks and it had adjustable seat and it was you know i had no i had no idea and it was really the surprise factor of that like they had you know told me i would not be getting that do not think about it stop asking us and and i had accepted that and then they i you know it's christmas morning it was sitting there anyway it was pretty awesome love yeah. love that bike great great who's the musician you've learned the most from that you've never met that i've never met okay i have been fortunate enough to meet a whole lot of musicians that um which is really neat you know to do something and to to where the people that you're interested in talking to and being around podcasting the same way and then you eventually get to meet them that's and or be a in some way appear with them is is a really cool thing but i think uh i think just as a guitar player it's just a simple guitar thing but um i uh was inf- influenced very heavily by uh people that compose guitar stuff that is m- melodic but kind of composed but not to, not totally flashy or some hybrid of r- weird rhythm and lead like ne- neither rhythm nor lead sure. uh sometimes and i think that uh some of the stuff some of the stuff that rivers cuomo did has done some of it's very standard rhythm and lead stuff but some of the stuff that he has did especially like in the album pinkerton mm. is just an unbelievable wealth of uh creativity that i don't I mean, I don't know anything else like it, and anything else like it is probably derivative of it, to be honest. That that I could identify today, but it's a, it's a, you know, it's it's neither rhythm nor lead, and it's just so creative and and out there, uh, and it working together, parts working together, and kind of. A th- composition like that uh and he he's great at actual blazing leads, but he kind of holds back on those, and he's always seems to be obsessed with the chord function and the melody working, and then. And on that album particularly, uh, he, he was able to really just do interesting uh, arrangements that where no part stands on its own, like the chords and the this, and just bust all that out into like a, I don't know, maybe more symphonic, like single part this and single part that kind of thing. So I kind of obsessed over that record. Uh, one of the first ways I learned to uh, record music and arrange music was in college. I had a bunch of free time because didn't do any schoolwork hardly. Hmm, but sure. I, me and my friends recorded the Pinkerton album on a digital like eight track recorder, like just a, didn't know how to record really, but I had a, just a eight track recorder and sat down to try to recreate that whole, that whole album. And so I would just try to play the drums or get somebody else to play the drums. And I would try to learn all the bass parts and play them and record that all the way up to the vocals. And I had a different friend in college do the vocals on each track. And we just basically emulated the whole uh, Pinkerton album by Weezer, every note and slide and guitar effect. And I just tried to, I just 
learned and absorbed every nuance I could uh, out of it. It turned out to be, I mean, it was turned out pretty good, actually. We did a pretty decent job. Not the recording quality wasn't good or anything, but it was really about the, the analyzing every possible nuance of the arrangement and then forcing yourself to, to learn it all the way through and, and get it back. And so that's pretty foundational for me. Right, right. And finally, this this uh, this often with with parents is tough because they're just they're just watching whatever their kids are watching. But what's mm-hmm. the last like book you've read or song you've listened or album you've listened to or movie or TV show you've watched? And uh, what did you think of it? Wait, I don't understand. What did you say about parents? Oh, so often parents are just like they're watching whatever their kids are watching, and they're like, "I hate that show." But uh, you know, sometimes that's not the case. Yes, I mean, goodness gracious, do I have to watch a bunch of kids stuff and get kids songs stuck in my head? Sometimes they actually. Um, I, I, I get stuff from it though, which is interesting. But me personally, I just finished a sci-fi book. I do audio books because I like it way better than reading. Um, and it's called after on by Rob Reed. And he is a, uh, Silicon Valley investor, startup founder guy, and and author. He he founded the company Rhapsody, which was the first streaming service that before Spotify, that Spotify and, Apple Music ultimately emulated, but he has spent the last three years writing this sci-fi book and studying the science behind it particularly, which is what's really exciting to me. I love science and that kind of stuff. I'm way, way into it, but I don't do a lot of fiction, but I found his podcast where he went through all the scientific stuff and talked to experts about AI and quantum computing and um, augmented reality and all these topics that are in this really speculative fiction book. And I was became so obsessed with it. I was like, well, I think I'm going to do a science fiction book here, even though I never, almost never do fiction at all. And so I just went through and did uh, 20 hours, uh, 19 or 20 hours of that book, an audio book. And I did a trip with my dad cross country. And so we listened to it a bunch on that trip. And so I j- have just finished that sci-fi uh, book after on, and there's a podcast of the same name, which I'd highly recommend. I'm obsessed with it right now. And then I'm, I'm doing a bunch of spinoff stuff from that. Now I'm in, onto another audio book about artificial intelligence. So that's what I'm kind of consumed with at the moment. Great, great. Well, uh, Bad Christian Podcast, you can find it wherever you found this podcast. Uh, Emery and your other assorted musical projects are available mm-hmm. on all sorts of platforms. Matt Carter, thank you for joining us. Well, Todd, thank you very much. I've enjoyed this conversation. I Think You're Interesting is hosted and executive produced by Todd Vanderwerf. And here's a surprise for you. That's me. And now some closing credits for your enjoyment and edification. Vox Podcasting is headed up by Marty Moe and Jackie Goldstein. Our executive producer of audio is Nishak Kurwa. Our logo... Our executive producer of audio is Nishak Kurwa. Our sound designer is Miles Ewell. Our logo design came from... Victor Ware, Crystal Stevens, and Georgia Cowley. Our production manager is Alex Ulrich. Our production coordinator is Carrie Clements. Our audio engineering and post-production are from P3 Post. And this week we recorded in two studios. Matt recorded in his studio in Seattle. And I recorded in the Village Workspaces podcasting studio in Santa Monica, California. Our editor is Peter Leonard. Our recording engineer is Che Brooks. As always, please rate, review, and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever. We're starting to get some some reviews coming in. I read all of them. I take your I take your notes. I I listen to them and uh, incorporate them into future episodes. So it really helps us. Even if you are critical of this podcast, it's it's good for us to know about that. You can email me at Todd at Fox.com. You can email the podcast at ITYI ye dot podcast at vox.com and you can tweet at me at tvoti to vote uh, we'll be back next week with another guest from the world of arts and entertainment or culture and media somebody who 
I think is interesting. And until then, you'd better watch out. You'd better not cry. You'd better not pout because the I Think You're Interesting podcast sees all. <laughs>